On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Luke Stamps and Dr. Chris Wisnicki about Thomas F. Torrance and evangelical theology. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Torrance, why should we even care about him, why don't evangelicals know about him, how does Torrance really relate to evangelical theology, are there differences, are there similarities, what's his view on atonement, theosis, the two wills of Christ, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am joined with sort of a dual interviewee slash host in Chris Wisnicki, who serves on uh, the London Lyceum's um, board as well as uh, one of our editors. He's awesome. If you don't know him, you should go follow him. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, one thing we've tried to do to promote that is to create sort of or cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We don't think those are the only things that we should cultivate as Christians, but we think those encapsulate somewhat well the twin side of having a virtuous disposition as we seek knowledge, but also seeking uh, the most rigorous uh, knowledge that there is thinking of things like Proverbs 2, where there's this imagery of this just great effort that goes in to seeking knowledge and the great reward that's there, and we want to pursue those sort of things, but we don't want to do it as jerks. We want to do it happy. Um, Today is going to be a lot of fun because we're bringing on our friend Luke Stamps, who many of you know and appreciate. He's done tons of writing and work, and we're going to be talking about a volume from Lexham Press It's called Thomas F. Torrance and Evangelical Theology, a Critical Analysis. So it's an edited volume with with tons of different um, topics. We're going to talk about some of them, not all of them. So Chris wrote a chapter on Torrance and the Atonement, and Luke was one of the editors and wrote an introduction. I don't know if you wrote anything else in in the volume. You probably did. But we're going to talk about a lot of it. Um, It's going to be wide-ranging, a lot of fun. Maybe... Before we start, um, I should just remind everybody, go check out the Center for Baptist Renewal while I'm at it, because they're doing awesome stuff. And Luke is, I don't know what your title is there. Luke, what's your title at Center for Baptist Renewal? I'm one of the, one of the directors, so I'm on the okay. board of directors at CBR. Cool. So I want to know, before we get into Torrance, we've done some stuff on Torrance in the past. So I don't think we need to give like a, a, just a generic sort of biography. I don't know if you guys have any favorite stories about tor- Torrance or maybe things that would f- potentially frustrate Reformed or Evangelical sort of Christians or that would really make them say, wow, I sh- want to read more Torrance. One of my favorite stories um, about Torrance <clears throat> as a Baptist theologian is that uh, you— um, you may know that Torrance was born in Chengdu, China. He was the son of missionary parents, Thomas and Annie um, Torrance, and um, they were missionaries in China, um, which, you know, which shapes his theology in many ways, like the, the, the notion of, of um, theology and mission being wedded together, um, I think is a, a helpful way of framing a lot of what Torrance is up to. Uh, but one of my favorite stories related to that is whenever um, 
uh, Torrance was a teenager, when, when the younger Thomas Torrance was a teenager, his family returned to Scotland. Um, the elder Torrance, Thomas Torrance, stayed in, in China to continue another seven-year stint as a missionary there. But when his mother, Annie, was uh, bringing them back for schooling and, and whatnot, they actually attended a Baptist church, um, even though they were um, members of the established church of Scotland, the Presbyterian church, and were influenced by the free church of Scotland. Um, she wanted to ensure that they received an evangelical education or, or in the faith uh, at church. And so uh, they actually attended a Baptist church. So that, as a Baptist theologian, as the, one of the directors for the Center for Baptist Renewal, uh, that's probably my favorite Torrent story is that it took the Baptists to catechize uh, uh, one of these great theologians of the 20th century. That's awesome. So we'll, we'll, claim, we'll claim him for ourselves, at least <laughs> for a right. couple of years. Um, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about Torrance is um, just how much, I guess, trouble he gets in um, because of how tumultuous the era is. So like when he, his family's escaping China, um, they're, they're going down the river and they're, the boat that they were escaping in, because this was during the Boxer Rebellion, um, gets shot at. Um, so his brother like tells that story of them remembering like bullets flying through the air as they're trying to make their way out of this missionary context. Um, one time he's, uh, he's stationed in, uh, in the Middle East and, um, there's this like uprising and he actually gets commissioned. Um, he was a college student basically on, um, what do you call it? Uh, like semester abroad kind of a thing. And he gets commissioned to be like a police officer, uh, in Jerusalem, so they give him a rifle, and he's uh, he's basically put on security detail to protect some oil refinery station. So um, he gets in a lot of trouble in, in a lot of ways. Um, one time he gets captured uh, while uh, also in the Middle East um, by some people who thought he was a spy, and his uh, his host essentially had to convinced them that no, he wasn't a Jewish spy, he was a Scottish student. Um, so there's all kinds of stories like that where um, he gets into that kind of trouble. But I think um, <clears throat> the stories that sort of capture my attention the most are the ones where he displays pastoral sensitivity in difficult situations. Um, there's a story of when he was out serving um, in World War II, and he had seen some pretty horrific stuff. Um, there's a story of one night he he was in the trenches, and the guy to his left and to his right both got shot and killed. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that he was seeing uh, as a chaplain during the war. Um, but there's one particular story where there was a young man, uh, about 20 years old, um, and this man had been mortally wounded, and he looked to Torrance because Torrance was with him, um, and I'll read, I'll read this verbatim. This is how Torrance describes it. He says, As I knelt down and bent over him, he said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? I assured him that he was. The only God that there is, the God who had come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, and poured out his love to us as our Savior. As I prayed and commended him to the Lord Jesus, he passed away. So you get stories like that um, quite a bit throughout Torrance's life. You get stories of students in his class coming to faith through him uh, in very liberal, um, almost non-Christian type settings. Um, I think that's just really encouraging. Yeah, that, that is cool. So uh, 
this book is designed to be sort of a little bit of an engagement with evangelical theology. Before we talk about how he relates to evangelical theology, I would imagine most evangelicals don't know who Torrance is. And I'm curious why that might be the case if he's this important of a figure. Yeah, so one of the things that uh, Mike Habits, the other editor, and I say in the introduction, it's not a claim that's original to us, several people have made it, is the claim that Torrance is at least arguably the most important English language theologian of the 20th century. Um, I mean, any claim like that is always disputed, I suppose. Um, but several people have have made similar uh, statements. Um, and so it really th- this book was kind of born out of my own personal interest in Torrance. I mean, I'd, I had written some on Torrance in my PhD dissertation on Christ Two Wills, which I've been on the London Lyceum to talk about before. Um, and uh, one of the figures that I looked at in particular was Torrance, who has a unique uh, take on on Christ's human will, uh, which maybe we can get to later. But um, I just sort of noticed, like, there's a lot of scholarly attention devoted to Torrance. There's a T.F. Torrance uh, Society uh, every year at the American Academy of Religion. There's a meeting of the T.F. Torrance Society. Uh, he gets a lot of play in academic theology. Some of the stuff around Bart studies is also overlapping with Torrance because Torrance was a student of Karl Barth's and they have similar although diverging theologies and so um, Torrance gets a lot of play in terms of academic theology but in terms of at least North American evangelicalism um, he's just really not even known right I mean if we think about evangelicalism more broadly um, and that you know we can kind of get to that conversation how do we locate position Torrance within the global evangelical movement but at least in terms of my context, our context, as, as North American evangelicals, relatively unknown. Um, part of that may be related to, um, you know, a, a kind of parochialism that, that frankly characterizes some of American evangelicalism, where we're not even familiar as familiar with what's going on even in uh, the United Kingdom uh, in terms of theology and, and whatnot. And... Um, you know, part of the another part of it may be like uh, at least some of the distancing from Torrance is his association with Karl Barth, right? Karl Barth is a name that that many evangelicals uh, may know and 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 kind of have an opinion about, um, and is a complicated figure in some ways, uh, especially as it his theology interfaces with evangelical theology. Um, but to the degree that Torrance is associated with Bart, sometimes some of the same kind of negative associations that people have of Bart are kind of transferred to Torrance. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why he's he's either not known or if he's known, maybe seen as suspicious as, as a figure that's not quite um, on our team, so to speak. Should we, I mean, should evangelicals be suspicious of him? I mean, I don't, I don't really like that language in general, just being suspicious of, of theologians, but I think you get the point. Like, what are the main differences? What are the similarities that are going on there between the two? I think this gets a little bit into some of the issues that come up in the book. Um, I think one, one thing that might make some people suspicious is that he doesn't have, for example, a very clear cut here is penal substitutionary atonement, which has been historically very important for uh, evangelicals. Um, 
Although I would say he does have an account of atonement, which is both penal and substitutionary. Um, but maybe not in the ways that we've become accustomed to talking about it. Um, I think that is one piece of it. I think the other sort of suspicion um, has to do with a lot of the the Barthian take on the nature of scripture um, and uh, inerrancy debates. And that, that was actually a thing that was going on in the UK as well uh, with some of the college fellowships that uh, Torrance was a part of growing up. You think of classic ones like um, uh, the student volunteer movement and uh, InterVarsity out there, um, debates between like Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott. There's all these British debates going on about the nature of scripture that Torrance is a part of, mainly because uh, he was so interested in doing ministry to college students at this time. Um, so I think the scripture piece is, is another one um, that might be concerning, uh, that you might want to have critical critical charity uh, towards. Yeah, that was what I was going to say, is like um, the, the scripture, his scripture doctrine, um, <clears throat> which... You know, he at times is pretty frankly critical of American fundamentalism as he sees it, right? Um, and so he really does kind of see his view of Scripture in some ways as distinct from American fundamentalism or, or American evangelicalism, we might say. Um, although, you know, especially if you if you uh, take a, a kind of a closer look, you find that uh, same thing I would say, similar thing I would say anyway with Karl Barth is. Actually, you still you still find a very high view of Scripture, like despite some of the differing formulations about, especially the relationship of Scripture to um, redemption and to the incarnation, right? So for Bart and Torrance, in different ways, they want to foreground the the re- the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, the revelation that comes to us that is a redemptive revelation, and the Scriptures, in a way, are subservient to that. Like the Scriptures testify to this more fundamental revelation of God in Christ. Um, and as a result, the, there's a criticism that, that, that comes through of American evangelical um, kind of propositionalist understandings of revelation in Scripture uh, and, and especially the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, and as Chris mentioned, like some of that is being hashed out among British evangelicals um, in the 20th century. So I think this, that, that really is the the it, you know, because because the doctrine of scripture has been so um central to evangelical identity in the 20th century and all the controversies uh from the fundamentalist modernist controversy at the beginning of the 20th century all the way through to the inerrancy controversy of uh, of the 70s and southern baptist context into the 80s um and on um that, that to the degree that that sort of held up as the sine qua non of evangelicalism with with Torrance dissenting from that in some ways um that yeah that's where you get the some suspicion the other thing that i think we can talk about as well that is if you know a, a little bit more about Torrance what you probably know is his view on Christ's um fallen human nature uh and so the idea that that and this is the same thing that Bart argues as well in different ways um the idea of you know that Christ assumes our fallenness uh, in order to bend it back uh, and redeem it and and so on. And there's 
tons of ink that has been spilt over that issue and there's a chapter in our book about it as well but that's another thing that people are like yeah no that's not that's not something that we want to hold yeah i'll say say one last thing about it um there are a couple of Torrance texts which are really great introductions anybody can pick up incarnation his book incarnation atonement mediation of christ um the other stuff is pretty hard to read um, he has a, a writing style, which is pretty idiosyncratic, um, can be pretty dense. So, um, well, at the same time, um, I think for a lot of people, pretty devotional. Um, if you can, if you can wade through, uh, his writing style, I think, um, personally and spiritually, you'll get a lot out of it, but I think that doesn't make him the, the kind of theologian that people want to just go to Barnes and Noble and pick his book up off the shelf, you know, and just read during their quiet time. So, yeah. So there's a lot of areas that we could cover and maybe we start Chris with you on his view of the atonement. Since you already mentioned a little bit of the, the penal substitution stuff, making people suspicious, potentially, what is his view of the atonement? How does that interact with more evangelical views? Yeah. So, um, so in this chapter, um, I try to do a couple of things. Um, one thing I try to do is I try to point out that there are two ways to think about atonement. Uh, you can think about atonement in a more narrow sense, um, which has to do primarily with uh, Christ's work, uh, his passion and his death. Um, and then you can think of it more broadly in terms of the work of Christ from incarnation all the way through ascension, and also the work of the Holy Spirit um, that sets uh, humans and God at one. So there, there's the, those two broad, there's the broad and the narrow view. Um, and one of the things that Torrance does is that he really emphasizes this broad view. He's not going to deny the narrow view that um, that the heart of atonement is the passion and death of Christ. Like, you can't have atonement without that. Um, but he is going to want to expand uh, our discussion of how atonement takes place and what constitutes atonement. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one reason for that is his emphasis on mystery. Um, at the beginning of his book on atonement, he, he um, points out that on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and this act of making... God's people at one with God happened behind the veil. So it wasn't visible. Like people didn't have access to seeing that. Um, and that's sort of an image that he he picks up on when he thinks about atonement, um, that it's not this thing that you can just sort of point to and just lay out this like completely clear, completely solid um, theory of exactly what's happening. Like we have to keep that sense of atonement is beyond comprehension um it's not ineffable in the, in the true sense of, in, of ineffability but we should be very cautious about trying to say too much about what atonement is so that's one critical feature um the other critical feature which does a ton of work um is this thing he calls the latin heresy um which the latin heresy is essentially his worry that um western theology thus latin um has so emphasized the juridical and external aspects of atonement to the neglect of um, the 
the vicariousness of atonement. So he's worried that when the West talks about atonement, that it essentially um, says, okay, here's Jesus, and he accomplished this, this thing that's external to him, external to us, um, and then somehow it gets applied to us. What he wants to say is that he wants um, the person of Christ and the work of Christ to be significantly more integrated. Um, it's not that Christ is a person and then we can think about his work as a completely separate category. No, those two things actually go together. Um, so because of this, the incarnation does atoning work. Because of this, his faith does atoning work. Um, his death does atoning work. It's an atonement from the inside out as opposed to being an atonement from the outside in. Um, and that gets to some of the penal substitution stuff as well. One flip side to this, Luke, you mentioned early on about his take on the human will, and you've done a lot of work on diothelitism and related. I, I am very curious to see what are his thoughts? Does he affirm diothelitism or not? Um, how does that all yeah. work out? Yeah, he's, he um, emphatically affirms that Christ has two wills, uh, the one divine will that he shares eternally with Father and Spirit, and then a discrete human will that he assumes in the incarnation. But what's distinctive about his defense of diothelitism or two wills Christology is that he believes that, this, and this is of a piece with his broader Christology, he believes that in assuming human nature to himself, uh, the Son of God assumes human nature in the state in which we find ourselves as fallen humanity, so that he assumes a fallen human will. Now, that again, that, that gets um, a lot of criticism. That gets a lot of discussion in the literature about Torrance, about precisely what does he mean by that. Um, and I mean, it's clear for Torrance that doesn't mean that that Christ is sinful. He affirms um, uh, Christ's sinlessness. Um, and even in a way, he affirms Christ's impeccability, that he could not have sinned. But he does believe that in order to be genuinely tempted and in order to be a representative, again, that notion of vicarious, you know, his vicarious humanity, his representative humanity, in order to represent fallen humans, he has to assume humanity in its fallen state, um, not not humanity in some pre-fall Adamic state, uh, but but humanity in all of its brokenness, fallenness. Um, and he argues that in, in assuming a, a fallen human will, um, in a way, uh, the Son of God is healing our brokenness by assuming it, it into personal union with himself. And that in some sense, that, that healing takes place progressively throughout his life and reaches this climax, especially in the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, um, you know, demonstrates this supreme test of uh, his human obedience. And so the, the language he uses is that what, you know, our, our broken and bent, uh, fallen human will is sort of bent back to uh, obedience to God so that he's kind of healing our brokenness from the inside out. Now, I personally have a lot of problems with that. <laughs> you know, like I think that's not the best way of thinking about the incarnation um, and this, the, the nature of Christ's human nature, so to speak. 
Um, and, you know, I've written some on that. Oliver Crisp has written some on that. And others have criticized uh, that view. Others, however, have written in defense of, of the fallen flesh view, as it's sometimes called. Uh, so Jerome Van Quicken has a chapter in the book, um, which to me is one of, I think it's one of the gems, the real gems of the book. Like it, uh, it, I don't agree with everything in the, in the chapter, but it, it to me, it, it sort of advances this whole conversation. I mean, entire books have been written about this. Dissertations have been written about it. Lots of journal articles back and forth about uh, Torrance's view of fallen flesh. I think the Van Quicken um, chapter helps to advance that conversation in some important ways, kind of seeing exactly where the conflict lies, uh, so to speak. And so that's, I think that in, in many ways, that's kind of worth the price of the book is to, to get that, that chapter. And obviously Chris's chapter, which touches on those same, same issues, kind of what, what does it mean to say that um, the incarnation itself and then the work of Christ in his, in his, in his uh, obedience and death, are bringing about reconciliation. So um, it's one of those points in Torrance where even if you disagree, um, it, it's interesting, right? At the very least, it's interesting and worthy of reflection and wrestling with. But there's also like a, um, I don't, I don't, almost like a, a, a homiletical uh, appeal to it, right? That I think we can in some ways still incorporate, right? It is. It's. It, I don't. I think it's a mistake to say that Christ assumes a fallen human nature. That's my view. Others may disagree, but I think there's a criticism to be made of Torrance on that point. At the same time, uh, Christ did assume, and the tradition has been uniform about this. Christ did assume, in a way, the effects of the fall. He assumed what uh, even the medieval scholastics like Thomas and Bonaventure talked about: the infirmities of the fall. He assumes, you know, being hungry, being sick, and tired, and kind of ordinary human infirmities. And then, of course, supremely, he assumes um, the suffering and death, the penalty that, that sin deserves. Uh, so it's not to say, if you argue that, that Christ does not assume a fallen human nature, does not assume a, a, a fallen human will, that doesn't mean that his temptations were, were not genuine or that his obedience was somehow kind of floating above the the uh, the difficulties of life kind of untrammeled, you know, from any kind of uh, real struggle or, or, or suffering, you know, but somehow he takes all of that on, um, not, not in his, in his own, it's not to say that his, his own nature is implicated by sin or by the fall, but he, but he takes on uh, as a, as a part of his satisfying work, he takes on those effects and the penalty for sin in order again, to kind of heal humanity from the inside out. I think there's still some, some, some theological kernel of truth there and, and again, a kind of almost homiletical um, you know, appeal to that kind of uh, approach. So I haven't thought about this a lot, but I'm still not sure of the distinction that is really being made with the fallen human nature. It seems like if you're getting all the infirmities and everything already on the non-fallen view, what exactly are you adding if you're still wanting to say he's not sinful in any sense? It's just always been a little bit vague to me that I, I'm, I just don't know what's actually being affirmed. Yeah. So, um, so he has this maxim that he translates it kind of weird, but it's from Gregory. The unassumed is the unhealed. And there's all kinds of different ways to, to translate that. Um, 
I think part of what he's trying to get, and I like the logic of it. And with Luke, I'm not sure. Um, I finally I I go all the way with it. Um, but I like the logic of it in this sense. So what he what Torrance is concerned about is that um, it's not just the infirmities that we tend to think about. You know, like could Jesus catch a cold? Like, could he have caught COVID? Like, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, I don't know why I went with COVID. But, um, so he's concerned with the sickness of the human will, right? An epistemic sickness. Um, That needs to be healed for Torrance. Um, Our will is broken. Um, That needs to be put right. Um, And because Torrance is so concerned with having this... um, this internal as opposed to external account of how redemption happens, it has to happen in Christ himself in order for it to apply to us. Um, It's not just that Jesus can do something and then like he wins the prize of a healed will and now he gives us the prize that he won. No, it actually has to happen in Christ. The healing of the will, the healing of uh, of our ways of knowing things, um, they have to happen in him. Um, and that's why he's so concerned with this this Latin heresy. He thinks that a lot of the tradition has sort of externalized how de- redemption happens. Like Christ does some stuff, um, and then he like passes it over to us. He imputes it or applies it to us, as opposed to it happening directly in Christ. And because of our union with with him in our human nature, that's somehow transferring to us. So... Just to be clear, Latin heresy, is he using heresy in a loose sense there? Uh, I, I think he thinks it's detrimental to the gospel. Okay. Um, would he say that somebody is not a Christian because of that? Uh, no. So it's not, um, yeah, it's not a heresy in the, the anathema sort of sense, mm-hmm. but uh, he does think that that undercuts the gospel. With He calls it a gospel of external relations. Okay. Um, and that's a suboptimal way of understanding God's work. So related to both of these things that we've discussed so far is, I think, the topic of theosis in some sense. I'm wondering, it seems like Reformed-ish theologians over the last century have become much more interested in this in this doctrine, whether it's trying to recover it from different people or trying to build out new and creative proposals in general. I think Mike... Uh, habits is doesn't he have a book on theosis so like what is torrance thinking is he one of those important figures that's really bringing this doctrine back to the foreground for people to think about and to reevaluate um how does that all connect and particularly even just with evangelicals should evangelicals want to retrieve these sort of doctrines or yeah not? i mean it's it's, it's cer- certainly the case that torrance is i would say on the leading edge of some of the revival of theosis or deification, divinization, depending on how you think about that um, in uh, 20th century theology. Part of that is related to his uh, ecumenical work. Uh, So he's a part of dialogues with Reformed churches and Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, And part of it's related to his uh, burden to retrieve uh, the Greek fathers. I mean, you can hear that in his critique of the Latin heresy, right? A kind of critique of his own Western heritage in a way, um, in favor of more Greek patristic thinking. 
Now, just kind of time out aside on a, all of that. I think sometimes Torrance's historiography is mistaken and and overblown. And and this is a common critique that people have made of Torrance is that he sometimes pits the East against the West in a way that's kind of out of fashion uh, these days. Uh, the so-called De Reunion thesis that says you kind of have an Eastern Trinity and a Western Trinity, and you have these differing uh, theologies at work. Uh, that comes through also in how he understands the reformers and then the reformed scholastics who come after them. And so I, I don't necessarily trust Torrance the historian, if that makes any sense. Um, it, it, you really have to look, in a way, look past that to see the theological construction that he's kind of distilling from it. So um, the whole... In, in a lot of ways, I think of that, um, you know, when we're in church and somebody uses a Bible verse out of context... But like theologically, what they're saying is like is spot on, or like, oh, okay, that's that's theologically true, but that's not what that verse means. Um, I feel like that's kind of how his historiography kind of works. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, was it Greg Bill who wrote a book called "The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text" or D.A. Carson or somebody? Um, that sometimes you get that that same or a similar dynamic with Torrance. You get, end up getting the right doctrine from the wrong historical analysis. Um, and, um, and, you know, I could give specific examples of that, but it, it's sufficient to say, like, I don't know that this Greek versus Latin thing is always fair or accurate. Um, but he is eager to recover the Greek fathers, especially Athanasius, um, who figures prominently throughout his long career, uh, Torrance's. And so part of that recovery of, we might just say, Eastern or Greek patristic themes is, is a recovery of theosis or this idea that somehow uh, in union with Christ, we become one with God. And therefore, we become more than what we would have been otherwise. Kind of we become more than what we are by nature, but become properly supernatural by virtue of our union with God. The way that Reformed theology often puts this is glorification, right? Somehow we share in the glory of God um, in the final state, our, our final state, um, when we're raised from the dead, will be transfigured, will be transformed in, into um, the likeness of Christ, who is the image of God. And so that, that theme um, uh, is being recovered, continues to be recovered in Western theology. It, it, it's, it's become apparent now, I think, to anyone who studies these things, that Theosis is not a uniquely or distinctively Eastern doctrine, but it has Western expression as well. Uh, you see it in the, in the Latin fathers. Uh, you see it in the medieval scholastics, people like Thomas Aquinas uh, and others. You even see it in the reformers. And so there's a lot of helpful work that's been done over the last couple of decades on um, theosis or particip participatory themes in Calvin and Luther and in the reformed uh, Reformation traditions. And so I think that uh, Torrance um, is a, a helpful voice in the sense that he's recovering that for Western um, Christianity. And the way that he recovers it helps to allay some of the fears that Western theologians and maybe evangelicals in particular might have about it. So when we hear theosis, when we hear Athanasius say, for example, God became man so that man might become God, you know, our, our are, are we sort of initially bristle at that idea because we, it sounds as if you're saying that um, almost something like Buddhist, you know, or, or Hindu, like somehow it's, it's almost pantheistic where 
there's there's a kind of uh, dissolution of the human person into union with God in such a way that our individuality is lost or that the creator-creature distinction is lost. And just to be frank, like that's never been what Christian authors have argued about theosis. Um, I mean, in the Eastern tradition, the whole distinction between God's essence and God's energies that you find, for example, in Gregory Palamas and then the Eastern tradition after that is, is introduced precisely in order to avoid that conclusion, right? The, the idea that you somehow become one with God's essence so that there's no, no longer a distinction between uh, the human and the divine. So theologians have, Christian theologians have never meant that kind of uh, caricature of theosis. But what you have in Torrance is, is um, just a, a helpful way of explaining that theosis doesn't mean that. Uh, and also that theosis is worked into the entirety of our salvation. So that a lot of the themes that evangelicals emphasize, like union with Christ, or the indwelling Holy Spirit, or progressive sanctification, or glorification, all of those themes that we're more familiar with as evangelicals are actually um, buttressed by or, 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 or helpfully framed by this idea that in our salvation we're not just forgiven of our sins. Again, that notion of the forensic or the juridical, that's there. But it's also this transformative and participatory that we actually become more like Jesus, more like Christ, and therefore more like God because we share in his life. And I think that's what you find so helpful in Torrance. The way he puts it is, the uh, this, this is a line that's always stood out to me, that our divinization is the obverse of God's harmonization. That's a nice little summary of it. So that, that, another way, that's saying exactly what Athanasius said. God becomes man. So that's God's harmonization. God becomes man in Jesus Christ. So that man might be lifted up in, in and through Christ into the very life of God. And so that's an incredibly helpful theme that, that Torrance can help us to recover. Yeah, and in the chapter... Um... In the book uh, by Mike Habits, I, I didn't know these sources, so I was very glad to find find him out. Um, he actually has several footnotes on uh, deification in the Baptist tradition, which I thought was really interesting. He even has a sort of forthcoming footnote on uh, in a book on Baptist sacramentalism, Volume Four, um, which I don't believe is out uh, yet. Volume Four is not out yet. Um, so, yeah, get. Take, buy the book, look at those footnotes if that's kind of your interest. Um, but the other thing that I would add to what Luke already said um, is that theosis can sound like this big, bad, scary word to a lot of evangelicals. And I think this is another place where um, that intersection happens, where he can allay some of evangelical fears around this. Um, one of the authors, um, one author on this, Finland and Karlamov, uh, they list a bunch of sort of conceptual equivalents for deification, and those include union, participation, partaking, communion, partnership, divine filiation, adoption, um, recreation, similitude with God, transformation, elevation. So the list goes on and on. And these are all terms that I think most evangelicals would feel really comfortable with. Um, <clears throat> and once you start sort of pinning down um, what Torrance's doctrine of theosis is, it's not as exotic as the word theosis would make it seem. Um, there's a couple things that come with his doctrine of theosis. One is um, incorruptibility and immortality. 
which I think everybody would want to affirm, right? Um, two is a sharing in the divine life, which I think most people would want to affirm in, in some way. And obviously you flesh that out in different ways. Um, knowledge, which comes through union. Um, so only the spirit of God can know God, right? Um, Paul tells us. And in the same sense, we only know God because of a sharing in, in the divine life. Um, so those are all things that are pretty, I would say, pretty uncontroversial, but they fall under this this bigger category of theosis. And that's actually um, one of the ways that some of the Eastern theologians tend to talk about it. Theosis isn't something that simply happens in the eschaton. It's a process that begins now, um, sharing in these features of the divine life happen now. Uh, it's not something that we have to wait for. So, Does any of this particular discussion have any relation to the donum superadditum in any sense? I don't know why I'm thinking it might, but I'm going to ask the question, and if I'm totally stupid, then that's so be it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's one particular way that Western theologians have cashed it out. That's not the only way, but it is related. Okay. Got it. Cool. Um, one, you know, there, there's, you guys have like 15 plus chapters in the book. Um, so obviously we don't have time to, to cover it all. I, I am curious, is there any chapter in there that you would say, maybe it's for you personally, that was the most helpful or challenging, or you think this would be the most valuable chapter for a, an American or a British evangelical to engage and to wrestle with torrents on? I mean, I've already mentioned uh, Van Quicken's chapter and Chris's chapter, and I'm not just saying that because Chris is with us and I'm trying to flatter him or because he's my friend, uh, but mainly because he's a Baptist evangelical. <laughs> and I think that, like, that for, for many of us, like, you know, there's some authors in this book who are, it's a pretty diverse field. I mean, there's people from other, um, from other countries and from differing kind of, um, different pockets of the global evangelical movement, but Chris is in my tribe, you know? And so I think that's why his chapter is so helpful is because it's an engagement with, with Torrance's atonement theology from, you know, people like a lot of your listeners. Um, and so that's helpful. I, I actually really loved, um, Noble's introductory, introductory chapter on the life of Torrance. A lot of stuff I did not know, uh, until I was reading through these chapters as they came in on kind of how Torrance, uh, Torrance's career and then the, the history of British evangelicalism are kind of overlapping. And, and, you know, that's obviously that's one of the things that we were trying to do in the book is show how Torrance interfaces with evangelical theology. And that chapter shows us that in a, in a, in a very important sense, in, in a broadly construed sense, Torrance is an evangelical. Again, not if you have a kind of narrow... Um, you know, North American uh, Chicago statement on inerrancy definition of evangelicalism, then no, he's not, right? And I say that as someone who affirms the Chicago statement, right? I'm not trying to criticize that, my own, you know, version of evangelical. So in a narrow sense, there's some differences. But in, a, in the broad, like, British sense, he is an evangelical. Um, and so seeing the ways, ways that his, um, his life and theology overlaps with evangelicalism, that was another... Uh, chapter that stood out. And my, Mike's chapter on theosis that we've already talked about. Mike wrote an entire book on theosis and Torrance. And so this is just another helpful distillation of that. Those are a few that st stand out to me. 
Yeah, so um, kind of along similar lines, um, the doctrine, uh, the doctrine, the chapter on scripture, I think, was really fascinating as well. Um, and part of that is, I think, this is kind of the heart of the book. Um, so let me give you a story. So when I came on to Young Life staff, um, I came on as somebody who was the spouse of a staff member. So my wife is on staff as well in the local area. Um, I had been around it for a while, but I had never been officially part of the organization. So I had this benefit of being an insider and an outsider at the same time. Like I knew and I understood the culture, yet I wasn't beholden to it because I had never been on staff. Um, And I think Torrance bears a similar relationship to evangelicalism in a lot of ways. Um, the, the names that come up in those historical chapters, you know, you think of John Stott um, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. So like his brother was actually the youth pastor for <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones um, before a fallout regarding the doctrine of scripture happened. Um, but you, J.I. Packer, like all of these classic British evangelicals that I think so many of us appreciate um, for their intellectual depth, but also um, for their pastoral sensitivities. Um, Torrance was a part of these circles, so he understood evangelicalism. He talks about personal relationship with Jesus in the same way that, you know, uh, any any old grandma would talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus and knowing him and knowing that he lives in your heart. Um, so he has this insider-outsider perspective that really comes across in, in these historical chapters, and I think that's one of the things that makes him so valuable. And even for people who are thinking about, um, listeners who are thinking about taking on Torrance in a more academic sort of way. Um, He makes an awesome conversation partner precisely because he speaks the language of our tribe, yet at the same time, he doesn't feel beholden to it. So he can diverge from it when he feels like it's necessary. Um, And I think those are the best kinds of people to have conversations with, you know, somebody where the logic is mutually intelligible, um, but there are differences, you know, if you're going to have a conversation with somebody who is on a completely different conceptual page, the conversation is not really going to go anywhere. Um, but he fits this nice middle space that I think is helpful for academic and pastoral conversations. Cool. So before we close, I'll give you an opportunity, either of you, do you have new books, new essays that are forthcoming at some point that you want to give a little bit of a promo for now to tell people to be on the lookout for it? Um, I guess for me, I'm, I'm, uh, wrapping up a book that I am co-writing with Matt Emerson on the Trinity. Um, we always need one more book on the Trinity, I guess. We're, we're doing the, the, the Craigle 40 questions on the Trinity, um, which I think those volumes, I think are incredibly helpful at introducing, um, you know, academic theology to, uh, kind of a seminary level, um, and even kind of thoughtful lay level, um, audience. And so hopefully our, our book will, uh, help contribute uh, to that series. Uh, again, 40 questions on the Trinity with me and Matt Emerson. Cool. Um, for me, there's two recent things, um, on Torrance. One is, uh, it's actually in Chriswell Theological Review, um, on Torrance and Limited Atonement. Um, I think, that's an interesting um, conversation because, again, he doesn't fit categories all that nicely when it comes to that kind of stuff. 
Um, and there's a forthcoming uh, essay in Journal of Reformed Theology on Torrance and mission uh, as a model for mission and the intersection of that and analytic theology. And then the, the final thing that I'll mention, um, which you guys are the first to hear it out in public, um, I just got a contract for a book on atonement with B&H Academic. So that'll be out in 2025. So Fantastic. You can awesome. look for that in several years from now. Yeah, you'll everybody. If if you have the chance to buy that book, you'll need to buy it because it's going to be awesome. I'm sure. I think Chris is one of those guys who's just he's got the right mix of everything. So he loves the local church. He's brilliant and he's just really cool and down to earth and isn't um, obnoxious in any sense. So everything he writes is awesome, uh, and I am very confident that this is going to be just the same quality. So. Everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you guys know that Luke and Chris are available to go find on... Well, I guess Luke's not on Twitter anymore. Maybe he'll be back at some point in the future. Maybe there's another social media platform that uh, eventually comes and you can hang out with him there. Either way, uh, you need to go check out their work and keep up with them as you can. So thanks for listening to the Only Analytic Baptist and Confessional Podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.